welcome to our podcast series, AGG Talks Cross-Border Business, in which we discuss legal issues impacting inbound and outbound foreign investments with experts in the field. My name is Mike Burke. I'm a corporate partner with AGG in the Washington, D.C. office, and I'm thrilled to be joined by John Kettle, who's a partner in Gaydens, an Australian law firm. And you're, John, you're based both in Brisbane and Sydney? Yes, I'm unusual background, Mike. I live in Brisbane, but work in Sydney. My wife's from Brisbane, and I relocated here 10 years ago, as you can guess from my accent, from uh, working as a partner leading international practice in a big Irish law firm, Mason Hayes and Curran. Yep, and I think that's probably where we met many, many years ago. Like I said, I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, we're going to talk trans-Pacific business. Bit of a change for us, because at AGG, we tend to focus more on transatlantic, but Australia both is a great market for U.S. companies looking to expand, Australian companies coming here. You know, maybe they fly a bit under the radar, but there's a fair amount of trans-Pacific trade. There is. And, you know, it's really important to still have regard to your transatlantic trade, even by talking about trans-Pacific, given some of the geopolitical changes which have happened in recent years, Mike, including Australia, the United States and Europe but which does have impact on business flows. I'll give an example of that as we talk. But you have this new relationship between Australia, United States, and the United Kingdom called AUKUS, which was its defense-based trips over into important areas like the security of of the supply chain for critical minerals, battery metals, defense sector, cybersecurity, and so on. And so that makes it very much a trilateral relationship, which goes your traditional route into the UK and Europe, more the UK and into Atlanta and East Coast, United States. But also now Australia is an important part of that and increasingly important as we see what's happening with supply chains in China and so on and some of the political disruption there. So why is it important trans-Pacific? Well, to give you one example of how this trips over. So we acted last year for in a transaction, which was probably the biggest geopolitical transaction of the last few decades, in selling a mobile phone business across the Pacific called Digicel to Telstra. And this is all public domain, but that was a deal which was more or less um, recommended by the US government and the Australian government's that Telstra, the biggest Australian mobile phone company and phone company, would buy this business for geopolitical reasons, but also good commercial reasons. And the good commercial reasons have stacked up. There is good business to be done in the Pacific. And I think that was uh, probably an understated part of that transaction. But what we are seeing out of Australia into the United States across the Pacific is a real flow of ideas which sounds a bit trite, but what it leads to is a lot of work in spaces like life sciences. The the tech which comes out of Australia, which flies under the radar, you're going to see more and more uh, mineral exploitation and exploration funded by capital out of North America or also out of Australia. The United States is getting more engaged in Australia in critical minerals and rare earths. What people may not realize is that over 70% of the rare earths, which we need for modern technologies and and innovation and so on, are really vested in China. They're either in the territory or controlled by China. So your next best 
territories for security supply for the West are in Australia, United States, Canada, some of South America, but predominantly Australia. And Australia's benefit for the business community globally, but particularly in the United States, which is where you've got the large reservoirs of capital, it's easy to get capital into Australia. It's easy to get capital out of Australia. It's a friendly, it's recognized by the US from top to bottom, military and civil, that this is a safe allied jurisdiction. We're almost like being an additional state or territory of the United States for investment purposes, to be quite honest, right? Even more so than Ireland in these days. Australia is one of the few countries that's partially excluded from CFIUS review in the United States. Yes. It's that closeness that, you know. That's right. And it's also an incredibly wealthy country. So if we digress back to more traditional business for the moment, say you're engaged in FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods or services, consumer-facing uh, tech, um, you know, some soft commodities and the like. Australia has 25 million quite wealthy or very wealthy people. Right. So I often say to people that Australia really is the wealthiest country in the world, leaving aside Norway, Saudi and so on, where, where the capital vests with the sovereign. Compact Australia made on its exploration and exploitation of its resources is that it's quite happy for the capital to vest in the buccaneers, the pioneers, the entrepreneurs. And that actually does have a material trickle down effect, probably a bit more than trickle down. So there is a, a direct a consumer capital to spend money. Yeah. You're not dependent on the state or the sovereign to move the cash into the economy when it's already there. Yeah, that's right. And and that's evidenced by the Australian, they're called superannuation funds. In the United States and Canada, you'd call them pension funds. So the Australian superannuation funds have trillion plus of Aussie dollars. So that's actually when you translate into USD, it's still a trillion plus dollars heading towards two trillion, if not already there. And that capital can't all be invested in Australia. It has to go overseas. And where is a secure, reliable jurisdiction pools of capital to partner with? And 350 million people, you know, in a jurisdiction with four to 5% unemployment, all right, you could do a bit better on your minimum wage. That could be controversial. I get that. But seriously, you're, you're a good jurisdiction to invest in, right? Because there's a consumer pool, there's an industrial pool of demand, uh, there's innovation, which, uh, and I see that quite quite frequently now in areas like defense, FMCG, and life sciences. Let's look at defense for a minute, because that's one area I think you and I both have practiced in. It's interesting that we started to see here, especially in Virginia, well, I live in Virginia, but work in DC, a number of Australian companies setting up their US affiliates in this area close to one of the military bases here because of the, the rule that you, you know, if you have a certain type of contract, you've got to be located within, I think it's five miles of the front gate of the relevant military base. Yeah. Obviously, that's one area that the trade does go both ways. Yeah, so defense is, um, it was a bit of a sleeper yeah. for a decade or so, right? But obviously with the conflict in the world now and also the development of, 
I suppose, supply chains, which means that you've got certain jurisdictions which you can't really source even components of supply in, right? So the, the Western powers are looking to do business with each other, and particularly around military. And to be really straight, the Anglosphere is pretty important here. Yeah. And that's not just AUKUS. That includes Five Eyes and extends to Japan and, and, and India to a degree. But Australian, uh, smaller Australian defence companies, I know this from personal experience, are, are being asked by US military and defence made primes to bring their product and tech over to the state so they can have a look at it. They want to trial it. They are quicker at making procurement decisions. And also you'll see it with the nuclear submarine contract, which Australia has with the federal government in the United States. You know, the Hill has approved Australia again for that it's it's okay to share some, let's say, technology transfer. That um, wouldn't share secrets with Australia, right? So that propagates more and more trade in defense-related sectors and personnel. So what I have also seen, this is probably a bit more anecdotally, is that where I live, there are military bases, Australian military bases, and there is a lot of US military personnel uh, with kids in the schools where my kids go to. This is becoming normal, right? And trade follows that people movement as well. Right, and talk of a more permanent US base in Darwin. I think there's at least 4,000 GIs, if I can use that expression, if that's still a, a, a term of art, up, up in Darwin with more to come, you'll see more frequent visits from uh, ships within the Pacific fleet. In my time here, I've seen aircraft carriers come in quite regularly. Right. So this is, it's an extension of Western democratic power. And it's focused on the Pacific because we are the island of democracy in the Pacific region. Yeah. And geographically, you end up being on the, we'll call it the front line with the Chinese who are continually pushing yeah. further and farther southward in their economic sphere of interest. Yeah. And that raises an interesting opportunity in itself, Mike, right? Because it's, you know, Chinese investment is still happens into Australia, but not into critical infrastructure, not into energy grids, gas pipelines, cybersecurity-oriented businesses, software-oriented businesses. It is more challenging for them. So that opens up the field more for U.S. capital to engage in in those activities here. And what we do see is, for instance, we haven't talked about energy yet, but let's maybe digress into that. But the Europeans are very big into renewable energy and decarbonization industries in Australia. I anticipate that some of the US corporates in that space and private equity funds and other funds, and also distress funds, because there's a degree of distress in the market at the moment, will look to Australia and go, actually, that's an opportunity for us there because the government settings here are very much pro-decarbonization, pro-renewable energy, but not at the expense of energy stability. So you've got a pretty fine environment here 
to invest in that space. I know there's there's a lot of opportunity in continental United States as well. So, but the Europeans are here, so the Americans should be too, right? Right. You know, in, in the U.S., we sort of have this uneasy relationship with decarbonization, where it's something we should be doing, but we can't quite take that leap to actually pushing on it. But the United States has been quite clever with its, you know, Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. Right. So the IRA, which, to be honest, has had an impact on the reallocation of global capital into energy, hydrogen, decarbonization towards the United States. And that has attracted Australian capital as well and will continue to do so. I know the rules that they're talking about at the moment are quite strict, but the fact is you have it in place. You have the policy in place in law. I don't think a Republican administration would reverse back on that because it appears to us that it it seems to work in those areas where you've got coal too, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's safe. And plus, uh, Joe Manchin's retiring, so we don't necessarily have to worry about yes. him coming up the works. But there has been a noted change over the past two years in the U.S. in the number and the quality of, of you know green startups, but we're still behind, I think, a lot of other parts. Yes. As you're suggesting, it, it's one of those maybe we could cherry pick some good ideas. Yes. So if, if I think laterally, I would have thought that there is great tech in America for what's called virtual power plants and all that, yeah. given the tech-centric nature of the U.S. economy more than others, to be quite frank. So I think there's a lot of road in this yet. Yeah. Related to energy, you know, you touched on it before, but extractive industries remains yes. a large target of investment, particularly in Western Australia. Yeah, uh, Western Australia, but also in Northern Australia, right? So what you have is, I come back to that security of supply, right? Australia facilitates the security supply, which the West needs to run all the industries we've been talking about, tech, defense, and so on. It also actually, it's tied in with energy, because these are very sort of energy intensive businesses, the amount of generating capacity which Australia is planning on developing is pretty fundamental to making that all work. So Australia is working in security of energy, but it's all very relevant because Australia, yes, it extracts the the minerals and the ores out of the ground, but to be quite frank, it doesn't always do the processing here. Right. So whilst there's opportunities to develop processing facilities on shore, which is a Western thing, there will probably be a lot of more being exported or certainly the minerals will end up in the United States for, for next phase development. Probably not too dissimilar to what happens with a lot of the pharma manufacturing and processing, which went on with Ireland, where part of the magic is done in Ireland and part of the magic is done in the United States. I think we'll see some on the extractive industries with rare earths and so on. Part of the magic will be done in Australia and part of it will be done in other US or US friendly jurisdictions. And a lot of this is sponsored by Congress and the House, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the strategic eye on securing that supply for what we think we might need in the future. Yes. So there are U.S. government policies which direct investment into Australia for that purpose. Fairly simple. Well, simple is the wrong word, but compared to other jurisdictions in Asia, investing in Australia is pretty straightforward. There are very few hoops to jump through. There are very few. There is the Foreign Investment Review Board hoop, which is a bit like yours, Mike. 
there are very high thresholds for the United States, high as in friendly. Um, so it only captures deals, you know, over a certain amount, which extraordinarily high figure, which never really is hit. If there is a pension fund, though, the sovereign pension fund or an, another sovereign wealth fund of, of of some hue, well, then you're into a different equation. You have to notify. But that's the same for everybody coming to Australia. Australia is a very friendly jurisdiction for U.S. capital. So it is more of a process rather than an obstacle. It's right. just something which has to be managed and timelined rather than asking yourself, am I going to get this through or not? Right. You're going right. to get it. You're, by and large, you're going to get it through, right? It may just be an extra few days, right? Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of the same advice on CFIUS relevant industries here in the US. The most recent one we've been doing is a Canadian investor into US telecom. Luckily, the ultimate beneficial owner of the investor it really is Canadian. It's not a convoluted structure. I mean, the advice is you have to file because you, you got to file. And similarly, you're going to have to deal with what you think will be intrusive or awkward questions. Absolutely right. Same but here. That's, but that's just the rigor of, you know, good governance. Right. And it's, you know, to be quite frank, it's one of the reasons it's quite democratic because you're just trying to identify who's at the top of the chain. It's not personal. <laughs> it's just governance. Yeah. I mean, related to the UBO question, we've just had our Corporate Transparency Act come into force on January 1, where now every entity like trusts, businesses, affiliates of, of foreign parents in the U.S. have to file ultimate beneficial ownership information with the Treasury Department as part of yeah. our commitment with FATF. Yes, but it's no different than if you're going to do business in Europe where you have to you know, deal with AML and maybe Mark Zuckerberg, but you still have to give your utility bill over yeah. to, uh, to my old law firm or whatever it was, right? And people are shocked when I, you know, they talk to them about forming a U.S. affiliate. What's the annual reporting like? And I say, well, it's half a page, <laughs> no financials. And their eyes get yeah. like, you know, that's so simple. Yeah, I've always found the U.S. in that context to be very, you know, business friendly. Yeah, not a lot of hoops. So, John, we're right up on our 20-minute mark. I think we can move to episode two, if that's okay with you. No, uh, no problem at all, Mike. Quite happy to do that. Before we do that, thank you for agreeing to talk to us today and thank our listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back soon.